All right, Mercy Road family, how are we feeling this morning? Come on. Oh, listen, I know you got one hour less of sleep, but you're at the later service. You slept in still. Come on. How are we feeling this morning? Let's go. Yeah. Good to, good to see you guys, your bright, shiny faces, and uh, it's good to be back with you guys. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, my name is Davey. I'm one of the teaching pastors here uh, the Mercy Road family of churches. And um, listen, uh, we, my family and I, we've been kind of traveling around quite a bit and, and speaking to different churches. Last week, I was at Mercy Road Northeast. How many of you guys have been to nor- Northeast of, you know, recently? All right, God's doing some incredible stuff there. We just helped them this past week launch our Pain to Purpose course, which is what I do full-time uh, with my, our ministry, Nothing is Wasted Ministries, and we help churches all over the country. Now all over the world, by the way. We just launched in the UK, which is awesome. And uh, yeah, you can give God praise for that. And it's really just a course to help people partner with God to take back their story, no matter what they've gone through in life. And so that's what we were, where we were last weekend and the weekend before. Then we were in Denver prior to that, doing the same thing, and then California the week before that. So we've been on a lot of travels. We've had a lot of fun, but I'm so glad to be back with you guys. And I'm particularly glad, <clears throat> kind of, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, to be right smack dab in the middle of a series about uh, Revelation and the end times and eschatology. Uh, Josh told me a couple weeks ago, he's like, hey, I've assigned to you the week of the return of Christ, which I'm like, thanks a lot, Josh. I appreciate that because it literally is the thing that nobody knows anything about, (laughs) all right? Because we have no idea when he's coming back, okay? And so, and I'm like, you gave me the return of Christ, the week, the thing that nobody knows anything about on Spring Forward Sunday. Thanks, I appreciate it. It was a soft toss right there, Josh. So we're gonna focus on this today, and, and, and I'm gonna, I really hope it stirs you up, and I hope that ultimately we can get into kind of the main thing that we're talking about in Revelation right here. We are gonna talk quite a bit about the return of Christ, and uh, let me set it up like this. When I was in high school, I was a, maybe a sophomore or junior. I, I know that I was driving at the time. I don't remember exactly what year. My parents thought I was responsible enough for them to go at a, to a conference. My dad's a pastor. So they left to go to a conference. It was an overnight thing. They left me at the house by myself with my younger brother, who's two years younger than me. And they gave me some explicit instructions in doing so. Hey, Davey, we're, we trust you, but don't, don't disprove our trust, right? Don't make us regret this. A couple of things you need to do. One, don't have anybody over. I thought immediately, what a great idea, you know? <laughs> the second thing, they were like, hey, make sure your brother gets to all of his practices. It was the summer. We were doing travel baseball. Make sure he gets there. And then here's like a list of things that need to be done before we get back. My mom often had me organizing the closet and stuff like that. Now, I was like, man, they'll never know, okay? Because at the time, I'm still trying to, you know, prove myself to my friends. And so I told all my buddies at baseball practice the next day, or the next day after they left, I said, hey, guys, my parents are gone. Let's have everybody over. Let's, you know, kind of have a little, like, get together and stuff. Now, there's, I'm a pastor's kid. There's two types of pastor's kid. There's the rebellious pastor's kid. There's the religious pastor's kid. I'm grateful, and I do say this seriously, I'm grateful that I didn't get into a whole lot of trouble growing up. I wasn't like this rebellious, got into drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff, okay? For the most part, I made good decisions. It was for the wrong reasons oftentimes, but, 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 but I made good decisions. This one, I decided oh, I'm gonna disobey my parents, but only to a certain extent. I'm not gonna get into crazy trouble. We're gonna have all my buddies over. We're gonna have some of our coaches who are college you know, athletes. We're gonna have them come over and stuff. It'll be really cool. We're gonna watch Tommy Boy. And we're going to get a big old case of Dr. Peppers. 
No, seriously, right? That's what I was like, this is so rebellious, okay? And, and I'm like, this is gonna be a blast. We have a lot of fun. And what I didn't know is that the conference either ended early or my parents decided to leave early and they came back the next morning. Now we were plastered on Dr. Pepper, staying up till two o'clock in the morning. And so when they came back to the house, they walked back in the door, they see me and all of my baseball buddies literally strung out all over the living room floor with probably boxes of corn dogs strung out all over the place too. I had not done the responsibilities that they asked me to do. And my dad walks in and he goes, what have you done? Now, needless to say, I was in huge trouble. But can I just say for a second, am I, if the worst trouble my kids get in when they're senior juniors in high school, come on, baby, is they, they like have a party with Dr. Peppers. We're good. We're doing good. Okay. We're doing all right. <laughs> so, so I, I got it. But here's the, I felt terrible about it. I felt terrible. And I started thinking about that later. And I started thinking about it in terms of my relationship with Jesus. Because all throughout scripture, Jesus will tell parables about a master going away and coming back, returning, and, and calling to account the servants whom he'd entrusted his stuff with. You see it all throughout scripture. Uh, rather, we have no idea when Jesus is coming back. What we do know is he's coming back. And here's what we do know for sure. Scripture makes it very clear. There will be a moment where you and I, by ourselves, not, we can't defer to somebody else's faith. We can't kind of pawn it off on it. We will look at Jesus face to face and he will call our lives into account. Hear me. And what I don't want to have happen for me and what I don't want to have happen to you is that he looks at you and says the same thing that my dad says, my dad said, and that is, what have you done? What have you done? What my deepest heart's desire is, is that he looks at me and that he looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Now listen, even the thought of that, the thought of us standing in front of Jesus can elicit a lot of different types of emotion, right? It could elicit some fear for us. In fact, if you read Revelation and you start to see some of the imagery that's popping up with all of these really crazy beasts and this wars and the famine and the blood and all that kind of stuff, it can elicit even more fear. But, but I want you to understand something. The writer of Revelation, John, he was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos as Pastor Josh talked about last week and kind of set this up. And he has this revelation, this apocryphal vision, right, where he sees what's to come. And he begins to explain this in this book. His intention, listen to me, is not to elicit fear. You hear this? It's not to elicit some kind of, oh, you better watch out. There's a warning. No, no, no. His intention is to encourage and bring hope. You hear me? His intention is for, for the people who read it, the people who hear it, for them to go, this is encouraging. This is hopeful because the people he was writing to in this context were caught up in so much tribulation, so much persecution. They were watching their friends and their family members lose their lives because of the persecution of the church. And John is saying, listen, there's hope. Hope is coming. Just hold on. Just hold on. Just hold on. And I've got to help you understand that Revelation is not a book to elicit fear in us. Standing in front of Jesus one day is not supposed to elicit fear in us. It's supposed to elicit hope. Because one day we will stand in front of triumphant King Jesus, who will, listen to me, he will have conquered all of the enemies. 
And what do I mean by that? The enemies of your soul, the things that are plaguing us. Listen to me. Death, shame, fear, guilt, regret, anxiety, depression, all the things that we are constantly plagued with, the trials that we're experiencing. We will stand in front of Jesus one day and he will have defeated it, conquered it. As J.R.R. Tolkien said in the Lord of the Rings, everything sad will be untrue. Isn't that amazing? This is what he talks about here. But here's the thing. We've got to understand a few things about this. And I think there's three kind of major tenets that Revelation brings forward that I feel like is appropriate for the return of Christ in this moment. And that is, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is central. Jesus is central. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. We're also going to be in Matthew chapter 25. Revelation chapter 5 starts out in verse 1. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And verse five says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the what? Come on, standing at the center of the throne. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. Don't miss this scene, this picture right here of a throne room where Jesus, the lamb, is slain in the center, and he's standing as a lion. Come on. Obviously, this reference back to the Old Testament, where the, the arrangement that God had with his people is that they could be made right, have right relationship with him by the slaughtering of a perfect lamb once a year, every single year, on behalf of the people. And then when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist pointed at him and said, look, behold, the lamb of God, come on, that is here to take away the sins of the world. And then Jesus became the sacrifice once and for all, for everybody, past, present, future, all of our sins made available, salvation made available through the slain lamb, right? And yet he's appearing as a lion in the center of the throne. Come on. This means that he is a conqueror. Well, this throne is taking place in this vision, and this throne is something that, listen, it might be this future telling, might be this like thing that John sees that we're going we're gonna to see clearly in the future, but it's also a present reality today. It's happening now. It's happening in this realm that we, that we can't see, but we can perceive, right? It's this, it's this realm that, it's, it's kind of spiritual, supernatural realm that's running parallel with the physical, material world right now. Now, even if you're skeptical of that, listen, you, you, you know there's something else going on. You can sense it. You can feel it. You can sense that there's something other than the material that's happening in this world. This is why we're obsessed with shows like Stranger Things, right? We binge watch this. Yeah, maybe it's entertaining and it's a great storyline, but something about the other realm kind of like resonates with us, right? Or if you grew up in my era, The Matrix, you know what I mean? Like this parallel realm that's happening on the side that we can't see. Or I mean, maybe younger than me, you grew up with Harry Potter, okay? Come on, right? Like th these are the things that cause us to go, I mean, there's something else happening. And I'll never forget the first time I experienced kind of that other realm. 
I, remember I was at youth camp, okay? And, and I, I'm at youth camp, and I'm, like, experiencing these things that, like, like the, the people are, are, like, raising their hands during music. It's like, what are they doing, right? It wasn't even that good. The music wasn't, right? I'm like, I've been to much better concerts than this. You know what I mean? Like, now, now here, look, I mean, we've got some incredible musicians, don't we, right? And it's like, this is an awesome thing that they're doing when they kind of set the stage for the pastor to come up and preach. But what are they doing, right? Because you might be sitting here going like, this seems a little strange. There's people who seem to be caught up in this and they're raising their hands like they're at a Taylor Swift concert or something. And they're excited about this. And man, some people are even like shouting out. And they're singing really loud. And, and, and some people are like coming down to the front in certain instances. And I, I witnessed that at youth camp. And I'm like, what is going on right here, right? It seemed like there was some, but then I started feeling the stirring. I'm like, what is that? Is that the air conditioner? Like it got cold. Like something just like made some goosebumps go all over me for a second. And I didn't quite understand it because I hadn't, I hadn't really understood how to get caught up in that. I didn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit and what he does to draw our hearts into understanding the person of Jesus. But I'll never forget that one particular youth camp where I remember going, man, I forget the like girl over here on the side that I was interested in, you know, that I just wanted to talk to after the service or forget kind of the things that I had to do or what we were going to do in the afterglow of it. Like, I don't want to leave this moment. Come on, you experienced that? I don't want to, like, I could sit right here and, and do this and sing this over and over and over for like ever. Matt Chandler calls it convergence space where this other realm seems to touch the realm that we live in. And we're caught up in this moment where, where things begin to make a little bit more sense because how many of you know much of our life doesn't make sense? There's this throne room moment where, where the person who was meant to live and exist on the throne is on the throne. And yet much of our life, many of us walk around where we don't experience that or walk in that or live in that because we're too busy creating these other thrones in our life. You, you understand what is happening in this room and what was happening right here with these four beasts and the elders that were around is worship, right? It's, it, it's awestruck worship. And it's, man, these beasts were terrifying. You go read in Revelation chapter four, there's a lion, an ox, uh, a human-like beast, and an eagle-like beast. And, and, and the lion is described as like a lion with wings with eyeballs all over his wings. Come on, it'd be like, like you're looking at that, you're like, what? Like we would be terrified by that, right? We would run in fear, we would fall to our face, we would freeze. Now there's some Indiana redneck in here, you're like, man, I'd take the shot, that's what I'd do. I'd mount them right there up on my wall, that's what I'd do. A nice prize, you know, like, no, reality is we would be terrified by that. But what Revelation 4 is trying to explain to us is the extent of creation, the extent of it. Come on, what is more noble than a lion? Well, what, what's stronger than an ox? What's wiser than, than a human? What's swifter than an eagle? The human, the extent of creation is still falling on its face to the creator who sits at the center of the throne, who is triumphant and conquering. And the reason they're doing this is because they realize that nobody else was worthy to open the scrolls. All of the other thrones that we set up, all of these little fiefdoms and kingdoms, all of our activity to try to place our attention and our affections and our desires and our investment, that, that's worship. And those things fall short. 
You see, here's what's crazy. In Western American culture, man, we get really excited about certain things, really passionate about it. But we come into a service like this where the Holy Spirit of God is moving in a manifest way, and we stand there stoic-faced with our arms crossed, expecting the performers to move us. Come on. Well, no, Davey, I'm, not, I'm, just not, I'm just not expressive. Oh. A lot of basketball fans in here. Past two days especially, come on. I bet you were real expressive in both the great exaltation and triumph, right? If you're a Purdue fan, come on. And those were like, woo! But you would never do this in a, in a church service. Why? It, it, why is it really quiet in here right now? <laughs> see, see, here's the thing. It's not that we're not expressive. Well, I'm just not, I'm just not good at singing. I just don't, I, that's not my thing. Yeah, well, you know, you've all, you've all been in that moment where you're at a stoplight and you're caught because the person next to you sees you just blaring out Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, you know. You don't even care if you're good at singing. You're like, man, I'm in a moment right now, right? See, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that we're not expressive or that we're not, we don't like to, I think it's that our, our worship is placed on the wrong object. We've set up these little thrones, these little fiefdoms that we put our attention, our desire, and our affections, and our emotions, and all of our investment into this space, our money, our time, all of these little things, right? This, this, my future plans, my goals, my dreams, my achievement, my family, my spouse, my, all of, you name it, right? We set up these little thrones, and then inevitably what happens? They end up disappointing us. They, they, end up, they end up failing us. And then it leads to this, like, oh, no, what happened moment where we start, to, we, start, we start to scramble, you know, this frenetic activity to try to restabilize these things in our life, right? Because this is where our hope and our dreams and our affections and our attentions are on. And, and then because we see that these things fail, we end up, we end up falling prone to, to these placebo effects that we think are going to, like, assuage this thing for us, right? These, like, coping mechanisms where we... We, 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 we turn to this thing because it, needs, it numbs the pain or the anxiety or the depression or the, 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 just the angst that we're feeling about all of this because life just seems so unsettled. And yet, John is expressing this here. He goes, I wept because nobody was worthy to open the scrolls, the, the, the deed, the title to render all of this made right. Nobody could do this. And they said, ah, but one. And he sits at the center, the Lion of Judah. No matter what kind of little thrones or fiefdoms you set up, friends, you will always have this God-sized void inside of your heart that only one can fill. Only the risen King Jesus can fill this God-sized void in your heart. He's the only one worthy of our worship. And that's what's happening in this space. And when you and I get overflowed with this, this gratitude and attention, that's what takes place when we start to worship or we start to sing out, we're passionate, we cry about this because we're getting caught up in that convergent space where heaven, right, the throne room touches earth. And we get to live in that. See, this, this is a present reality that he's talking about. Jesus is central. This can create a lot of fear, for us still in a, in a lot of ways because awe is something other than us. We're all struck. We don't understand it. It's mysterious. 
And so that's why we approach Revelation and we miss the point of all of it. You see, John wasn't necessarily talking about, see, we approach Revelation and we ask questions like, we ask questions like when, right? Or how? Those are the questions we're obsessed with. John's like, no, 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 you're missing the point. You need to approach it and ask questions like who? Why? Who is at the center of this and why is this happening? You see, I, you know, I, I joke around uh, uh, sometimes that I, because I was a, a pastor's kid, I had a drug problem growing up. I was drugged to church every time the doors were open, you know? And so we used to go to these really goofy things, right? These like, they're called judgment houses. Do you guys remember anybody? Okay. In the South, this is, I grew up in Alabama. This must be what it was. But inevitably they would talk about this. Basically it was this church service kind of play or skit. They would take you out around to these rooms and it was during Halloween. And so it was an alternative to haunted houses for Christian kids. So it'd take you into this one room and there would be this scene where, where, the, where the believers, the people who had a relationship with Christ are hanging out with non-believers, usually at a mall or something, right? And then, then the lights would go out for a second and kind of strobe and then boom, those believers are gone. Their clothes are left. You know what I mean? And so it was like, anybody, anybody resonating with this? You know what I'm talking about, right? I, so it's the rapture is what they were trying to convey right here, the second coming of Christ where everybody's raptured up. And so I, this began to terrify me, okay? And so I started reading and consuming everything that I could about it, like the Left Behind series, you know what I mean? So I'm reading all of that and I'm like, oh, and it was, it, was, it was so fearful. I was so frightened by this. And so they, you know, these rooms, they would take you into this and they, this thing would happen and they would take you to the next room and it'd be like, well, all the Christians are gone and God's spirit is gone. And so then there's this massive war and plague and famine and all this tribulation and stuff. And you're like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that. And so then they take you to the next part where there was this final judgment and God was sitting on the throne. He's going, you go to hell and you go to heaven. And it was very sinister and very like, it was like Zeus, you know, that was kind of saying this. And then the next room would be a representation of hell and be like the furnace is turned up and it's really, really hot. Then the very next, you know, room was the representation of heaven. It's like light and cloudy and there's Jesus and he's feathered haired and he's passing out hugs and suckers. And then the very next, the very next scene, they'd take you into a room and they'd say, which one do you want? Pray this prayer. You know, don't get left behind. They're like trying to scare the hell out of you. Right? we're missing the point. We're missing it. You see this all, this throne right here is not about this get out of hell free card prayer that we do. This is about realizing that there is nothing else, no one else that's going to satisfy me. Jesus has to sit on the throne of my life. And so all of these little smaller thrones that we all are prone to set up, I'm not exempt. They have to come subservient to the King Jesus. That's what Revelation 5 is all about. Jesus is central. But you know, he, Jesus, second thing is Jesus is coming. He's coming. I probably could have come out with that and said, hey guys, return to Christ, Jesus is coming. Let's pray and go home, you know? Like he is coming. Now there's a lot of different theories about how, how or when and all this kind of stuff, you know, and what, what's gonna happen. In fact, I, I thought maybe just to kind of bring you into an academic space, you can go research it yourself. But for a couple moments, let me tell you the five major theories that dominate uh, evangelical Christianity. Um, and, and so we're gonna put these up on the screen. Um, this is crazy. This is a lot of information, but we're going to do it real fast. So these timelines you see are five different theories of, of how this whole second coming is going to come about. Now listen, uh, so many people much smarter than us for centuries have debated this, okay? So I'm not telling you what I believe, and I'm not telling you what, 
what, what Mercy Road believes, okay? I'm just telling you the theories that kind of dominate this discussion, and you can go and decide what you believe. I could sit in a room and hear somebody tell me these theories and go, yeah, I could see that, all of them, all right? So here's the first one, post-tribulational premillennialism. The cross and all of these represent Jesus dying on the cross. The little white arrow represents where we are on the timeline as the church in, in present day uh, history. Okay, so this one is, says there's going to be like a tribulation, right, or difficulty trial that leads to a second coming of Christ. Then that, in that second coming, Jesus is going to set up a thousand year reign, followed up and capped by the last judgment. Okay, that's the post-tribulational premillennialism. The second one is pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism. This is what many of you guys are more accustomed to, not because it's necessarily right, but because it's most popular. This is like the left behind books, okay? It's become the most popular theory. And so this is the, the cross. You've got where we are. You've got the second coming or the rapture, okay, what we just described right there. You've got this space of tribulation. A lot of people in this theory, in this camp, they think it's about seven years is what they think. And then there's going to be a second coming back again with Christ, the church is going to come in and set up a thousand-year reign on earth, okay? Then the last judgment, all right? Then you've got post-millennialism, which basically means at some point, this ambiguous time period, there's going to be an actual thousand-year reign that is set up. At some point when there's enough Christians in this world, it's, it ushers in a reign of a thousand years of the church or of Christ, and that's followed by a second coming and last judgment. You guys following so far? We ready? Okay, next one. Amillennialism, which means not an actual thousand-year reign, but kind of a symbolic thousand-year reign. And, and, and the theory is, is that that's what we are a part of right now and that there's going to be a second coming and last judgment. All right, here's the last one. Double post-tribulational pre-amillennialism. Come on, somebody. Man, aren't you glad I went to school for this? <laughs> you see what I mean when I was like, Josh, seriously? You know, okay? This is and a more historical timeline, 70 AD is the destruction of Jerusalem, which led to a persecution of the church, which spread the gospel out to all of the nations, right? So now there's this conversion of the nations, and then there's Christendom, which is the church established in all of the nations, which is theoretically what we live in right now, and then there's a last judgment, okay? Here's the point. Every single one of these theories, they disagree on a lot of things. They agree in one thing. He's coming back. Woo, he's coming back. And they believe and agree on the fact that he's coming back as a conqueror to conquer the enemies of God. Well, that sounds really like horrific of God to do that. No, no, no. I need you to understand everything that God would conquer would be something that would destroy his creation's soul because he is madly in love with you. See, that's what we have to understand. We have to understand the why behind all of this. You see, in Matthew chapter 25, there's a, there's a parable that's told. Jesus tells this parable about the second coming or about the end times. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Uh, instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. 
Later, the others came also. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. See, we can read these parables and they can be very, very confusing to us, mostly because we don't understand the, t- the context in which Jesus was telling these. Now, Jesus does say that he tells parables to make it a little bit more confusing for people rather than clear for people. But you're like, thanks for that, Jesus. There's an intention behind that. It was actually a rabbinical teaching style to cause you to want to go and search and seek for it because when you seek, you will find. Come on. You knock, the door will be open to you. It reveals an even deeper truth. But this right here, they would have understood what he's talking about in a large way because of the the Jewish customs of marriage, a wedding ceremony. You see, when when an early Jewish groom would want to go and betroth or ask a, a bride to marry him, he would have to get his father's blessing to go and seek that bride. The father would say, yeah, go ahead. It's time for you to go and seek that bride. And so the father would say, hey, I want you to go with a dowry a, 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 because a, a bride has a price. Now, listen, as I tell this, I need you to see the symbolism in all of this. You're going to see it very thick, many of you guys. And so the, the groom would go out to seek and find his bride, and he would pay a price, a very high price for that bride. And immediately it would commence this betrothal ceremony. When the, by the way, the bride had to accept. He couldn't just take the bride. There had to be reciprocity there where the bride says, yes, I want to enter into this covenant with you. Then there would be this ceremony that would, that would start, and the ceremony, ceremony would be marked by two glasses of wine. The first glass of wine, the, the groom would take, and he would drink, and he would hand it to the bride. And then he would say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my father's house. Come on, does that sound familiar? See, the last night before Jesus went to the cross, he sat around with his disciples and he, he, he did what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. He took a glass of wine and said, this is my blood that I will shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he drank it and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you again in my father's house. So then at that moment in a Jewish ceremony, they would veil the bride. They would cover her face for an undetermined period of time and the groom would leave. (laughs) That sounds kind of weird, right? I mean, most of the time in American culture, we're like planning our wedding together and it's this frenzy, right? The bride would stay and would wait in her hometown and the groom would go back to his father's house and he would go to build an addition onto his father's house called a shupa. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, "I, I must leave to go prepare a place for you. My father's house has many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but but I go to prepare a place for you. The groom would go and prepare a place in his father's house. And the groom at this point has no idea when he's going to come back and get his bride. In fact, it was up to the father. The father of the house determined when it was time for the groom to go back and get his bride. And often, it would be in the middle of the night, he would wake the son up. When all preparations were made, when everything was complete, he would say, son, get up. It's time to go get your bride. You understand that we are the bride of Christ, is what scripture calls us. 
Jesus even said while he was here, I don't know the time or the place, but my Father in heaven is the only one that knows. And so what the groom would do in that time is he would grab his accompanying party and he would go back to that village in the middle of the night. Jesus said, like a thief in the night, I'm going to come. And in the middle of the night, he would go and, and he would have to arouse the town and wake them up. And so he'd grab this horn, this trumpet called a shafar, and he would blow it. If you read the Revelation, there's trumpets being blown over and over and over. He would blow this trumpet and they would say, the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom is here to come and get the bride. And, and, and what they would do is the, the, the bridegroom or the, uh, the bride and her attendants would have to be ready. They would have to have their lamps ready with their oil all in it because you need lamps, you need light to go and take the path back to the Father's house that they were gonna go to. And in this parable, five of them were ready and five were not. They didn't have the oil. Oil in scripture always represents the Holy Spirit. What, what does this mean? When you talk about the parallel of this, this means to be ready is to have the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift the moment that we step into relationship with Jesus. But here's what's interesting. These five foolish ones feigned that they were ready. Come on, it reminds me a lot of the Western American country club Christian church where you show up, you do your thing, you check off the attendance, you kind of like, I better just make sure I hedge my bets on this stuff. But when it comes to a relationship, when it comes to actually surrendering my life to like, no, I think I've got some better ways. I don't like what, I don't like what Jesus says in scripture right here about my, my marriage or about my finances. I don't like what he says about how I should handle my time. I don't like these kinds of things. And here we go. We create these little thrones again. Oh, you, we, we can do it better. We can do it better. And then those thrones just fall short. You see, the Holy Spirit is a gift to us, to those of us, not who pray this like get out of hell free card, but to those of us who surrender. This is about surrender. This is about worship. This is about attention and affection. This is about my life being subservient to Christ. And you're like, man, but I still don't agree with so many things that scripture says. I don't either sometimes. I'm human. But every time I see it, I've got to realize, wait, this is a God who exists outside of time that knows so much better than I do. He's always been, always will be. And so when I don't understand or I don't agree, I have to say, Jesus, teach me to see as you see. Give me eyes to see that because I trust you. And then I, then I surrender. And somehow, whenever I do that, I don't know, I can just testify to what I've experienced and so many of you guys have experienced, when I do that, when I surrender, when I lay my throne down at his feet, subservient to his throne, there's so much peace. Does that mean that everything fixes itself in my life? No. It just means I don't sit on the throne. This thing that's going to fall and fail doesn't sit on the throne. He sits on the throne and he's got it under control. So they, went, they would go back to the father's house and what would happen is that they would have this massive banquet. The bride and the groom would come in and they would consummate the marriage and then they would seal the door for seven days. Nobody could get in or get out and they would feast. 
and they would finally drink that last cup together. Revelation at the end, you're going to find, talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, you you can't miss this. This whole book, this whole thing, it's about a marriage covenant where he's crazy about you. He loves you. He's obsessed with you. He cares about you so much that he would send his son to pay the penalty for our sins so that now his blood covers us. And when he looks at us, he doesn't see our shortcomings or our failures. He doesn't see the things that we did wrong or even the things that we try to do to make up for the things that we've done wrong. He sees Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This is what he sees. This whole thing is Jesus wanting to enter into relationship with us. I want to know you. I want to know you. See, we miss it. What do I need to do, God? How do I need to, what, how do I need to measure up? What do I need to, like, what's the, give me the checklist. What's the, no, 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 no. He just wants relationship with you. And listen, your soul knows it too. Your mind may not know it yet. Your mind may be like, why would he want relationship with me? But your soul knows that every other relationship and every other thing that you've put your stock into, it's going to fail you. But your soul knows only he cannot fail me. But Davey, I haven't been faithful. I haven't been faithful. <laughs> I haven't been faithful. Listen, What's crazy is you see this thread of marriage covenant all over the place, this entire narrative of the Jewish early marriage ceremony. You see it in the Old Testament with the Israelites and and their storyline too. You see that that Moses went up on the mountain to grab the covenant from God and bring it back. Come on, he was bringing it back to the the people. It was was just like the, 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 the bridegroom going away and bringing back to the people. And what were the people doing when Moses comes back to bring this covenant relationship? They were worshiping another God. They're like literally having an affair when the groom comes back. And yet, what does God do? He keeps pursuing them. He keeps chasing them. He keeps loving them. He keeps calling them. He keeps being faithful to them. When you and I are not faithful, he's still faithful. That's what this whole thing is all about. And that's why, that's why when we sing and we worship, We're so overcome by the reality of his faithfulness despite our faithlessness. And we can't help but get caught up in worship. Come on, friends. We can't help it. We can't help it. Well, he's coming back. He's coming back. And when he does, he's coming back to conquer. And he's triumphant. And every enemy of our soul will be finally and fully put in the grave. And everything that is wrong about our world right now will be made right. Everything that you see on the news that's causing all this anxiety, everything that stresses, all this kind of stuff, he makes it right. He wipes away every tear from our eyes, all of the pain that we've endured and experienced. Listen, hold on. Hold on. He's coming. He's coming. Can we do this? Can we just stand? We're, we're going to respond right now in, in, in this 
this moment of I hope will be for many of us this convergent space, right? Where we just, we forget about our surroundings. We forget about who's with us. We forget about the grocery shopping we have to do in, in just a couple of minutes as we leave from here. Thanks, Davey, for reminding me. I had forgotten about that until you just said that. We forget about all of the to-dos and the tasks and the stuff that we just in a moment say, all hail King Jesus on the throne. And maybe today you need to, maybe today you need to deconstruct the throne that you've set up and you need to put Jesus on the throne of your life for the very first time, receiving what he did for you on the cross, believing he raised from the dead so that you wouldn't have to live bogged down with sin and guilt and shame and defeat and anxiety. So Jesus, I ask right now as we, as we move into the space, would you move in such a powerful way? With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe today your response is that you need to put Jesus on the throne of your life for the very first time. I'm not talking about just, you know, you're praying to get out of hell or to make sure you're here when the rapture comes or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about your attention, your affections. You, you are subservient to King Jesus. Maybe that's what needs to happen in this next couple of moments. And, and, and listen, you don't, you don't need my help for that. Your heart is crying out for it. Even in these next couple moments, you can pray right where you are to to Jesus and say, I I need you. I surrender to you today. I want to follow after you and you alone. Or maybe you're in here and you've just kind of recognized some little small thrones that you've set up, these little things that you've preoccupying your attention and your affections and and you want to repent from that. You want to say, King Jesus, I I am so sorry for putting so much stock in these things. I trust you and you alone. So Jesus, whatever we have to do right now in this moment, I pray that you, that you would do something so real that we would touch that throne room right now, that we would see you and hail you as King Jesus. In your name we pray.